0: Please take your Bible and turn to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4, 1 Peter, chapter 4. This morning we're going to return to the book of 1 Peter, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 6, having finished the third chapter a couple of weeks ago. Let's look at verse 1 of 1 Peter, chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also, with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries, And in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. But they shall give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. If you have even a passing acquaintance with the New Testament, you know that there's a lot said about our being involved as followers of Christ in a battle. We're at war. It's what Donald Gray Barnhouse described as an invisible war. And he was correct because our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. They are the minions of Satan. Satan is the CEO of this army, the general of the army in which we find ourselves engaged in battle. And we know that the Bible not only tells us that we're in a battle, it does not simply describe the battle. It talks about the weaponry of our warfare. The weaponry is not conventional weaponry. It's not the kind of weaponry that we in our own personal lives, sometimes resort to with words that create a war or behavior that creates a war in a family or in a community or even a nation. It's a different kind of weaponry that we've been given. It's not carnal, but it's spiritual. It's designed and does, in fact, accomplish the mission of bringing down strongholds which Satan and his demons have established in this world. This weaponry is described by Paul in Ephesians 6, where he describes how we are to put on the whole armor of God. You're familiar with the various elements. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, the shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This passage that we're reading today talks about another take on the armor of God. In verse 1, the Bible is very clear. We are to arm ourselves with the same purpose. Which raises raises a very important question, doesn't it? What's that talking about? Well, it's talking about the first part of verse 1. Look at it. Therefore... And the word therefore points back to something that the writer wants to have us apply to our lives. And that therefore is rooted in Christ, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, meaning the body. Now this in itself would indicate something that is probably not debated by you, but it could be. It was debated in the first century for sure, even within the church. Some said Christ really was not a human. He just looked like a human. But he is described here as being one who suffered in the flesh. And let me remind you that the human author of this book, this letter, was none other than Peter. He was very close to Jesus. When John introduces his first letter in 1 John, he talks about how he and his cohorts, including Peter, they saw Jesus, they heard him, they touched him. He was human. Jesus suffered in the flesh. This statement, therefore, and what follows, points back to verse 18 in chapter 3. So take a look again at verse 18 in chapter 3 of 1 Peter. For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, that is, in his body. He suffered in his body, but made alive in the spirit. We know that He came alive in His Spirit. After He had died, before His body was resurrected, His Spirit was alive. And that's a foreshadowing of what will happen to you and me. If we know Christ and Jesus does not come back before we die, we'll die. These bodies will die. Our bodies will be, as it were, buried in the ground. But the moment of our death, the Bible says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, will be alive spiritually. So Jesus was alive during that interim between the day of his death, on what we call Good Friday, and the morning of his resurrection, on what we call Easter, the Lord's Day. Look again at verse 1. therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Aha, here we're getting close to an understanding of what the emphasis of these verses actually is. Arm yourselves also with the same purpose. The word purpose is not the best interpretation of that word as far as I'm concerned. Here's what the word is made up of. Two words from the original language. It's a compound word. The preposition in and translated the word mind. Be of the same mind. Be in the same mindset is the idea. Have the same mindset of Christ when... When Christ was being mistreated, being punished, being rejected by evil men when he was on the cross. What was his mindset when he was on the cross? Well, turn back to chapter 2 for a moment and let's look at verse 23. The mindset of Jesus when he was being crucified is described for us in verse 23 of chapter 2 of 1 Peter. And while being reviled, he did not revile. The word revile, we don't use that very often. I don't guess I ever use it, except what I'm reading from the Bible. I want to know what it means. It means to be slandered. Most of us know what that means. So we can substitute the word slander. And while being slandered, he did not slander in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Now, Jesus had every right... To utter threats. He was being wrong and he was God. He was innocent. That was the judgment of people who watched him die, who had participated in his death. He was innocent. And not only that, he was God and is God. And he could have wiped them out. He not only had a reason for wanting to retaliate, he had the power to... To carry through with his threats. Lots of times you and I make threats that we never follow through with because we can't fulfill our threat. Jesus could, but he uttered no threat. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So this is what is in the mind of Jesus when he's on the cross. And this is what Jesus wants us to arm ourselves with as we walk through this life engaged in battle. He wants us to understand that just as surely as He suffered unjustly without retaliating against those who treated Him unjustly, so He wants us to do likewise. That's the armor. Arm yourselves with the same mindset of Jesus when He was being unjustly punished on the cross. Now, that's a tall order for anyone. But it's not beyond our reach. Because Christ, who died on the cross and suffered that sort of rejection and humiliation, all the pain, he lives in us if we know him. He's not just with us. Thank God he's with us. But more importantly, he's in us. He indwells us. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless. I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Amazing. That was true of Paul. You may say, that was Paul. He was an apostle. But do you know what Paul said about us, in effect, when he wrote to the church at Colossae? He said, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do you know Jesus? If you know Him, He lives in you. And He wants to reproduce His life through you and me. So what we're looking at here today is not just an exercise in some preacher or teacher trying to explain the Word of God. This is about us. We have Christ living in us. And we need to arm ourselves. This word translated arm means to equip properly with a tool or a weapon. In this case, what is our weapon? It's the mindset of Christ exhibited when He's on the cross suffering. Remember what the Bible says in the book of Hebrews about that event? That we're to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. Make no mistake about it. It was the most grueling period of endurance in eternity. And He scorned the shame of the cross because He knew what lay ahead. He would be vindicated. He was vindicated by His being raised from the dead. And He is vindicated by triumphing over all the forces of evil. And He's called us to join Him in this great journey we know as Christianity, following the Lord Jesus Christ. This word translated arm was used to describe a Greek soldier... Arming himself, picking up his weapons, getting his clothing on for battle, and going into battle. It was used of a Roman foot soldier. Arming himself, picking up a pike and his shield. A pike is a heavy stick that was used for various means in battle, hand-to-hand combat. And so what this would say to us is, we need to be fully prepared for battle. And this tells us, at least in part how that is to go. Remembering that our battling is different, altogether different, than the way of the world. Because Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. He has a different set of rules and a different kind of weapon that he battles with, and we are to battle in the same way. A couple of statements as we launch into this in more detail. Really two basic ideas surface from this passage. We cannot be properly armed if we follow the crowd in the world. That's in this passage. You'll see it in just a few moments. We can be properly armed if we follow Christ. Very simple. Don't follow the crowd. Follow Christ. That's the emphasis of this passage. Did Jesus ever follow the crowd? He marched to the beat of a different drummer, didn't he? Who was beating the drum? In his humanity, remember, he retained his deity throughout his presence on earth. He didn't lose his deity when he became human. It was the fusion of his humanity. 100% human, 100% God. Deity. But in his humanity, he chose to submit himself to the authority of the Father. And he makes statements like this. I don't say anything except what I hear the Father saying. Nor do I do anything except what I see the Father doing. Jesus didn't follow the crowd. And Jesus calls us not to follow the crowd. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, verse 8, He says this, Don't be like them. He's talking about, in that particular context, don't be like the Gentiles. The pagans in the world. Don't be like them. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, who were the religious muckety-mucks, they were the uppity people in the religious system of the day. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the religious establishment, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow, don't be like them. Don't be like the out-and-out pagans. On the other hand, don't be like people who are just religious. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. So Jesus calls us as his disciples, don't be like them. We are armed, or are to arm ourselves with the mind of Jesus. And that arming ourselves with the mindset of Jesus will result in our ceasing from sin. Let's read again verse 1 in its entirety. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same mindset, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. The idea here has ceased, the tense of the verb suggests, has made a clean and final break with sin. In Romans 6, Paul writes to the Roman church, and he says in verse 12, Stop presenting your members to sin as weapons of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. Stop presenting yourself. They were presenting themselves, but they were told to stop. Now, do you think the Lord would give you or me a command? that He would not give us the power to obey? That would be rather cruel of Him, wouldn't it? If He gives you and me a command, He gives us the power to obey. And our problem is, we really don't believe what God says in His Word. If we understand the Word, and it's not hard to understand. It's in God's Word. If we obey what He says, we will have this kind of cessation from sin. Now, you're saying, okay, Pastor i know you're not perfect and you would be right i have been imperfect today more than once already and i will i don't want to be making a negative confession here by the way but i may probably i'm just going to say i'm pretty sure i'll be imperfect sometime before the day's over again but we know we're saved from condemnation for our sin But we also know that the Lord has given us His presence and we will not live a lifestyle of sin that was characteristic of our lives before we came to Christ. That's what Peter is writing here to these people. They came out of a very, we're going to see, a very dark kind of existence. And they came into the light. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 1 that God has rescued us who know Jesus from the domain of darkness and we've been transferred into what kind of kingdom? The kingdom of light. We are not any longer children of darkness, but we are children of light. Jesus is the light of the world. And He says we too are the light of the world. How does that work? Well, remember, where does Jesus live? If we've received Him, He indwells us. So it makes sense if He's in us, He's going to get out of us. He's going to shine out of us. And He does that as we yield to Him and trust Him to empower us to walk in the light as He is in the light. Not to walk in the darkness anymore. So we do have those moments when we deviate. From following Christ. We deviate. We get off. And we quit following Him. And we find ourselves in a ditch of sinful behavior. Very much like what we may have experienced prior to coming to Christ. Do you remember when you came to Jesus? Do you remember that? Do you ever reflect on that day when you came to Jesus? Do you ever reflect on that? It was a great day, wasn't it? What did you sense when you came to Jesus? You probably cannot even explain it with words. But part of what you probably sensed was, I'm a different person. Something's happened to me. It's something I can't articulate, but it has happened to me. And then you began began to see some of your attitudes change. And the things that really dominated your life, they were no longer able to dominate your life? And what was the answer as to why that was happening? Well, first John three nine says this Anyone who is born of God does not practice sin because his seed is in that person. Now, whose seed is that speaking of? It's God the Father's seed. And who is that seed? It's the person of Jesus. He's in us. And therefore, His presence in our lives gives us a new focus. Instead of focusing on ourselves and on the world, where does our focus go? On Him. And the result is, He gives direction to us, and He, in the long run, ensures that we will walk with Him, as opposed to going back and run with the Gentiles, as it were, the people that we ran with who didn't have a clue, just like we didn't have a clue until the light came on in our hearts. Look at verse 4. And in all this, they are surprised, talking about the unbelievers that we used to run with, the crowd we used to hang out with, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excess of dissipation. Now, that's a mouthful, but suffice it to say, we don't run with those people anymore. That's what it's saying. We're going to talk about what their reaction to our not running with them is in a few moments Why do we want to be with the crowd? I thought about that, of course, in preparation for this talk, this teaching. And I thought, well, probably one of the reasons is we're basically insecure. And if we can be part of a crowd, a mob, or whatever, a gang, we can be part of that group. There's a certain security. We belong, right? We belong. And then also, it's a problem of mistaken identity. We want identity. We want to have an identity by being associated with a certain group of people, a crowd. The good news for us is, if we know Jesus Christ, where does our security lie? It's in Him, right? We're in His hand, Jesus says. And no one can snatch us out of His hand. In Predicting the Messiah in Jeremiah 23, the prophet speaks on behalf of God. And God talks about how there will be a descendant of David or Jesse. And that descendant will be one who will bring security to the nation of Israel. Security to the nation of Judah. We have security in our relationship with the Lord. That's where real security is. If you're looking for security, don't look for it in a crowd. Don't look for it in any other person except the person of Jesus Christ. And also, our identity is in Jesus. In other words, instead of being identified as whatever, you fill in the blank, what happens is you recognize that your identity is in Christ. And by virtue of your being in Christ, you are a person of great worth. And He has a plan for you. So, forsake the crowd, if you're still in it, for the Christ. Follow Jesus. And the byproduct of following Christ is you've got a bunch of other people who are linked to Christ too. You're part of Christ's body. And it's lovely, isn't it, to be connected to a group of people who love Jesus and are serving the Lord? It's incredible what happens in our lives when we have that kind of connection. Before 123, look at 123. 1 Peter. Before, what is described here, you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and abiding Word of God. Before you were born again, before you were made new, you ran with the crowd. But now, you follow the Savior. Isn't that true? And before you were born again, You carried out, as it's described here in chapter 4, the desire of the Gentiles. You lived a lifestyle of fleshly behavior. Let's look again at verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, which means mindset, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men. Before we receive Christ, we live for the lust of men. And that word lust, we typically associate it with sexual immoral thoughts or acts, and that's part of it, but it's broader than that, the desires of men. It's the love of the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. That's the world, and we are in the world, and the whole world lies under the control of the evil one. Satan is the master, the prince of this world, and we're in his domain. Before we come to Christ, we have no clue. And all the behaviors we're going to look at here, and by the way, all sin is destructive. It destroys people. Because The master of the world came for three purposes. Jesus describes it. The thief, speaking of Satan, came to do three things. What? To steal, to kill, and to destroy. That is the M.O. of the devil. And he wants to do that. And we see expressions of how he does this in verse 3. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. That's in the past. Let's put that behind us. Having pursued a course, all these six nouns here are in the plural. Some of them are translated as such by the New American Standard. But the reason that they're in the plural suggests this to us. Number one, these behaviors, these fleshly behaviors are... Varieties of behaviors, even under these six headings. There are little nuances of behavior under all of these. And then it speaks of the frequency of the expression of these behaviors. As we've already seen, that the Gentiles run in the excess of their dissipation. They're just running from one experience to another, seeking fulfillment. And let me just pause before I forget it. Remember what we learned in 1 Peter 2:2. Two, 1 two. Peter 2:2 two, two says that like newborn babies we're to crave the pure milk of the word. I suggested and I'm right. I'm pretty sure in having suggested this or I wouldn't have suggested it when we studied that months ago that every human being is created for addiction, everyone. And for the same addiction. Do you know what it is? The milk of the word of God. And one of the names of God, El Shaddai, God Almighty is the way it's typically translated. The word Shaddai means many-breasted one. God is the many-breasted one. Do you get the picture? We are like newborn babes to crave the pure milk of the Word of God. We connect with Him. And in connecting with Him, as Peter goes on to say there in 1 Peter 2, he says... Once you've tasted of the Lord, you know that He is good. And nothing else will ever compare to that again. This is what happens. When people are born again by the living and abiding Word, they get connected for the first time in their existence to the One who is capable of filling up the emptiness in their lives. People without God are empty. That's why they resort to what we're going to look at, at these kinds of behaviors and other kinds of self-destructive behaviors. It's because they're looking for fulfillment in the wrong place. It's what Pascal described as the God-shaped vacuum that exists in every human's life. In our heart, there's a big hole, and we try to fill it up with all kinds of activities that are self-destructive, sinful activities. Let's look at these six which are mentioned here. The first one is sensuality. And this is a word which speaks of no self-restraint. No bars hold. Let it loose. Just let it all out. Do whatever. There's, in this word sensuality, the incapacity to blush. This idea of sensuality was used outside the New Testament to describe behavior that didn't even meet the standards of public decency in a pagan world. This kind of unbridled expression of whatever came into a person's mind to do. The next word is lusts, And as I've already mentioned, this word is not a word which means simply lust of sexual expression. But this word is a strong desire of anything or to do or to have anything that's outside the parameters the boundaries which God has established for expression. It could be lust for money. It could be lust for revenge. It could be lust for blood. It could be all kinds of lusts. This is another expression of that kind of way of living. It's the lifestyle. Now stop with me just a moment. Jesus describes him as himself as the way. In the book of Acts, one of the descriptions of the church is called the way. Now, what's that all about? The way is the way of following Christ. It's a way of life. Jesus has called us, who are in Christ, to a different way of life. And it's the only way. It's the way we were created to follow God anyway, when we were born the first time. But we were marred by our sinful nature in that particular situation. So, lusts. Look at the next word, drunkenness. This is a compound word. And it's pluralized, again, it's a compound word of the word wine and to bubble up or to overflow. A person who is drunk overflows with wine, figuratively speaking, overflows with the influence of wine and experiences a lot of things that he or she cannot remember as a result. When I was in college, I was the president of my social fraternity, And I was probably, out of a hundred men, young men, they were just boys trying to learn to be men. I was probably, I was one of three guys who were not drinkers in in the deal. And I would, I shared a room, I had two roommates when I was living in the fraternity house. And both of them were kind of heavy drinkers. And they would come in at midnight, in the middle of the week, and they were inebriated. And they wanted to talk to me. Well, I was trying to sleep, but I was wanting to be a good example of Christ to them, and I'd listen to them for a couple hours. And by the way, this one semester, I had a 9 o'clock class and I quit going to it. So I flunked the class listening to my roomies, you know. I think it was worth it. It's the only F I've ever made. But uh, thank God I was able to make it up and graduate. So, anyhow, what I learned about these guys, I would maybe engage later in the week about some of the conversations we had, and they didn't even remember what we were talking about. i tell you what, I want to remember everything I talk about. Not because I'm the talker. I just don't want to get myself in trouble. You know what I mean? But the reality is, this is what happens. The Bible says that we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Not to be drunk on wine because it leads to dissipation the same word that is used here by Peter when he describes how this crowd is surprised that we're no longer running into the same excess of dissipation and the word dissipation in verse 4 and in Ephesians 5:18 and in Luke 15:14 where it's used to describe the prodigal son who he went away from the father and he wasted His entire estate, he squandered it. That's a strong word. I like that word. He squandered it in riotous living. And the word translated riotous living is dissipation. It was an empty way of living. Here's what the word excess of dissipation means. An impetuous plunge into an open sewer. That's what this word paints. It's a word picture. And that's what happens for people who are living in a state of dissipation. Look at the next three words. Actually, they really go together. And actually, all six of these words could be lumped together because they describe the kind of behavior that was typically associated with idol worship. You know enough about the Greco-Roman world to know that there were multiplicities of gods. Many gods and goddesses. And people didn't necessarily devote themselves to one. They had a variety of the week. That they devoted themselves to. But many of these behaviors, if not all of them, are associated with idol worship, false gods, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. I won't go into an explanation of those beyond what we read in our English reading Bibles. But here's what I would say. These terms were used with regard to the god Bacchus. You know who Bacchus was? He was the god of wine. Many times, the Bacchanalian celebration would begin inside the confines of the temple of Bacchus. But then, after things had gotten kind of loose, then the people would spill out of the temple into the streets. It would be like Mardi Gras in New Orleans. Some of you have seen that before in person. Or in Rio de Janeiro, or places in the world where there's this big party, right? It's just Letting it all hang out. That's the picture which is painted. And so many of these people who were in Christ to whom Peter wrote this were people who had that kind of background. But something happened to them. They were changed. In an instant, they were changed. They were raised from the dead spiritually when they trusted Christ alone. For their salvation. The emptiness which had nagged them and gnawed on them had, had driven them to such self-destructive behavior. It was gone just like that when they received Jesus. They were new people in Christ. What a wonderful thing, isn't it? In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul himself talks about this same idea a little bit differently. He uses different kinds of behaviors. But he talks about how If you behave in that way, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Read about it in verses 9 through 11. Having to do with sexual misconduct. Having to do with the way we treat other people. Thieves. Covetous. Revilers. That means slanderer. People who are swindlers are not going to be in heaven. That's what the Bible says. Keep fooling yourself if you want to. You're not going to be there is what the Scripture says. And this is what it goes on to say. These are wonderful words. For such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. So what do we know? What we know is God saves people out of those kinds of situations. Now, this passage goes on to say in verse 4 that they, that is, these people that you used to run with before you came to Christ, they will malign you, they will poke fun at you, they might even become physically aggressive towards you. And I thought about why do people have this reaction to us who know Christ? and really are following Jesus, we're not trying to put them down. We know if it were not for the grace of God, we'd still be in that kind of behavior, that self-destructive behavior. It's because they feel that because we don't participate with them, we're judging them. We're not, are we? We're not judging them. We're not. But that's the way they feel. Tim Tebow is a name that's familiar to a few people here. He... Was a great athlete, and in my mind, still is. He's 30 years old now. Certainly not over the hill as an athlete. What we do know is that, I do at least, I'm pretty sure of this, he was blackballed out of the NFL because of his faith, really. Do you remember how when he would be used by the Lord to accomplish some great feat on the football field, what he would do? He did what came to be known as T-bowing. Now, I'm not going to try it here because Two people have to come and help me up if I (laughs) didn't. But you remember what he did. He'd get down on one knee and pray. And what began to happen in the NFL, when someone would sack him, I remember when they were playing the Jets when he was with the Broncos one time, and this Jet sacked him, and he ran to midfield, and Tebow. He was mocking him, wasn't he? He was making fun of him. And Tim has come out with a book just recently. It's called Shaken. It tells about his life from the time he was taken out of the NFL to now. It's been a rough road for him. He suffered, believe me, he suffered He suffered ridicule. But what I've noticed about him, to this point at least, publicly, he's never lashed out at those people. He's got the mindset of Christ, doesn't he? Even though he is reviled, I'm talking about Tim Tebow, even though he is mistreated, he's hurt. Inside, he does not strike back. Why? Because look at verse 5. They shall receive, talking about the Gentiles who malign believers, because they are no longer associating with the behavior. I'm going to talk about association with them in a moment. They shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. What this tells us is, look, we're to leave judgment to God. Really vengeance to God. You know what the greatest testimony you will have is? Is when you are mistreated because you are following Jesus. And you do not react in anger or wrath toward those who have mistreated you, either in word or in action. As we were reading from Psalm 37, let me just read portions of it. Do not fret because of evildoers. If somebody is doing evil to you, Don't fret, for they will wither quickly like the grass. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light. Now listen to this, I love this. And your justice as the noonday. Whom can we entrust ourselves to? The same one that Jesus entrusted Himself to. To God the Father. Who is the judge. And we will misappropriate judgment if we take it into our own hands. When Jesus was on the cross, what did He cry to the Father first? Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Jesus was praying for the salvation of the people who were hurting Him. He was taking the punishment, the judgment in His own body on the cross for those who were opposed to Him. And here's what's remarkable. When Christ expired, what we see in the book of Luke, chapter 23, remember there were two thieves? One speaks to the other thief who is still ridiculing Jesus, mocking Jesus. And he said, this man has done no wrong. Talking of Jesus. And then he turns to Jesus and what does he say? Remember me when you come into your kingdom today. He was saved. Why? Because of the way Jesus behave in the face of what we can't even begin to understand. That's what brought this man to Christ. And that's what will bring some of your friends that you used to run around with to Christ. When they make fun of you, maybe the group makes fun of you, they say things to your face and behind your back, they make all kinds of remarks that are insulting to you. And then you love them, and you love them, and you love them. You don't fight back with them. You love them. And what's the outcome? Well, some of them will be like the thief on the cross. What about the centurion who was in charge of the crucifixion detail? He was the man in charge of that detail who crucified Christ, put him on the cross. And when he saw Jesus die, this is what he said Surely this is the Son of God. He is innocent. And in Matthew's account of this, what I just mentioned about those two men, is recorded in Luke 23. In Matthew 27, the Bible says, not only did he say, surely this is the Son of God, but others said it too. Now, we don't have any way of knowing exactly how that went, but I'm going to speculate with you just a moment. I think he said it, and then somebody else said it, and then somebody else said it. And then there were a chorus of people saying, surely this is... The Son of God. Why did they say that? It's because of the way in which Jesus died. The way He handled Himself when He was under this kind of ridiculous treatment at the hands of people who were wicked men. But He entrusted Himself to the Lord. We can be properly armed if we follow Jesus. Look at First Peter chapter 2.21. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. Christ followed the Father, didn't He? Go back to chapter 4 again. Look at verse 2. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for what? What are we to live for once we're saved? For the will of God. What a great exchange. For the will of God. Jesus said, I came down from heaven Not to do my own will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. And Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be His disciples. Why are we here? Even people who don't know the Lord. Isaiah 43 says, We are created for His glory. How do we glorify the Lord? By bearing fruit. How do we bear fruit? We die to ourselves like Jesus did in order that many more people can come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was holy. In fact, in chapter 1, if you'll go back to chapter 1, the Scripture says in verse 16, You shall be holy, for I am holy. This is God speaking in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, but it's Jesus also saying this here, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Jesus was perfect, but also He radically identified with people who were sinners. And I love this about the Lord. I hope you do. Some people said about Jesus that He was the friend of sinners. And they were saying that to hurt Him. But really, that was the most beautiful thing they could have said about Jesus. He was has been and will remain the friend of sinners. And I hope you're glad about that, because we're all sinners. And it's not a matter of degree of sin. It's a matter of separation from God because of our own sin. And how God has bridged the gap in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we're not to compromise In any way, we're to identify with unbelievers. Look, one of the ways you know Jesus is in you, here's one of the ways. One of the ways you know Jesus is in you is are sinners comfortable around you? Not all of them, and not initially necessarily. But once they're around you, they're comfortable because people typically, I'm talking about non-religious people here, okay? We're very comfortable around Jesus. They just gravitated to Christ. And that will be true in your life. Do people find themselves at home with you who don't know Christ? You don't have to do what they do. Forget about it. You don't have to do that. You don't even feel compelled to. You can hang out with them. and They do what they want to do. Some of the things we've looked at and other things. But you are used by God as you do good to them and you love them. One more look at... 1 Peter, verse 12 of chapter 2. This is really the reason Peter wrote the book. This is the key verse. 1 Peter 2.12 Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your what? Good deeds. As they observe them, do what? Glorify God. When? In the day of visitation, what does that refer to? When Christ comes again. Which would suggest is, people are going to be saved through our good deeds in light of and in the context of our being mistreated. They're going to say, why are you this way to me? And it's a no-brainer. It's not me, but it's Christ in me that gives me the capacity To be this way. Bob Jones founded a university. It's in the Carolinas. I can't remember. I think it's in South Carolina. It's called Bob Jones University. It's really excoriated by liberal Christians and even some evangelicals make fun of it because it's so outdated. It's about do's and don'ts and how long you wear your skirts and all that kind of thing. But this man was a wise man. And listen to this statement he made. To his students, he was the president and founder of the school. Be busy being a doer, not a donor. Let me say the last word again. Donter. I'm not talking about donor like giving money. Some of you kind of jumped like that when I <laughs> said that. It's Donor. Be busy being a doer and by implication of good deeds, not a donor. Now, there are a lot of don'ts in Scripture, and we're wise to adhere to them. But God calls us to be proactive and be like Christ, who is described by Luke as one, a man who went about doing good. He's in us, right? So what will happen through us? He'll do good through us as we trust in Him. There's so much more to be said. I want to look at verse 6. I'm going to have to. I want you to see this. It's one of the more complicated verses. I didn't get to it last night, but I want to get to it today. Verse six says in chapter four: "For the gospel has, for this purpose, been preached even to those who are dead." Now I'm going to do a little editing here, because I believe those refers to believers who are now dead. The gospel has for this purpose been preached, that though they are judged in the flesh, in other words, it's appointed unto man once to die. Every human will die. And after that, the judgment. That's part of being human. Look at the way it concludes. That they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. So, the good news is, we have purpose beyond the normal. Some of you are familiar with the Country Western group, Alabama. Uh, I like Alabama. Not the team, nor the state necessarily, but I I like Alabama. Do you know the song, I'm Not That Way Anymore? Do you know that song of theirs? I'm Not That Way Anymore? Time has closed yesterday's door. Let me modify that a little bit. What we should say... And aspire to say, I'm not that way anymore. Christ is closing the door of our former life. Would you bow and pray with me? Has Christ closed the door in your life? Or have you just played at your Christianity? Are you satisfied with your life? Or do you find yourself frustrated Worried? Uneasy? Do you want just a little bit of God? Or all of Him? Well, when we trust Christ, the Scripture tells us that we receive all of Him. And I want to encourage you this afternoon now. To in the privacy of your heart to say to the Lord, Lord, I'm tired of sin in my life. I can't overcome it alone. But I know that through You, I can. And I'm going to ask You to give me the power to be done with a self-centered, self-destructive lifestyle so that I can follow You with a whole heart. Thank You, Lord. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Hope you have a good week.